Welcome to this third episode in the Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series on enforcement of arbitration awards aimed at financial institutions and others operating in EMEA. My name is Nicholas Peacock and I'm a partner in the International Arbitration Group in the London office. In our previous episodes, we discussed the position in Russia and the Middle East and the complications that arise in the context of enforcement in those jurisdictions, and indeed even when drafting arbitration agreements connected to those jurisdictions. I'm joined today by Jonathan Ripley Evans, the Disputes Director in our Johannesburg office, who has extensive experience in South African litigation and arbitration. Jonathan and I are going to be discussing the enforcement of awards in South Africa today, and we'll also briefly touch on the practice in its neighbours. We're recording this podcast on the 31st of October 2019, so the usual caveats apply that the position we describe may have changed, as this is a fast-moving area. At the outset, and at the risk of repetition, if you listen to our previous episodes, the key message here is that you should always be thinking about enforcement at the outset of any transaction. Enforcement should not be an afterthought when parties are negotiating a contract. The all-important question for banks should always be, where are the assets, or where are they likely to be, if I ever need to enforce against them? Often banks prefer arbitration over litigation in certain transactions because reciprocal recognition treaties for court judgments tend to be limited in emerging markets, whereas the New York Convention offers a way to enforce arbitration awards in those countries. At the same time, the practice of arbitration is still developing in many jurisdictions and offers pitfalls for the unwary. With that said, Jonathan, could you give us a bit of an introduction to the framework in South Africa and the attitude of South African courts? Hi, Nick. I guess that in order to properly understand the position in South Africa, it's important to appreciate that South Africa is a hybrid legal system. It's made up of common law, as directed by judicial precedent, civil law, largely directed by statute, and local customary law. Another important thing to remember is that Southern Africa has never really been a buzzing hub for international arbitration. And this is partly due to geography and partly due to sluggish legal reform, both internally and from within the region. Now, having said that, the law of arbitration is well developed in South Africa. It acceded to the New York Convention in 1977, and arbitration has always played a significant role in the legal fabric of South Africa. The problem was that the 1965 Arbitration Act governed both domestic and international arbitrations right up until 2017, which meant that the law of arbitration was effectively frozen in time. The only significant change since 1965 came in 2017, when the highly anticipated International Arbitration Act came into force. Thanks, Jonathan. And does this new legislation then make enforcement of awards easier in South Africa? Yes, fortunately it does. The new Act, which incorporates the provisions of the UNCITRAL model law, has elevated the arbitral framework to that which is expected of a country taking international arbitration seriously. But there are some challenges. The new International Arbitration Act, as the name suggests, governs only international arbitrations, leaving domestic arbitration at the mercy of a rather antiquated piece of legislation. The more obvious challenge for both domestic and international arbitrations is that legal reform in South Africa is driven predominantly by judicial precedent. The courts will still need to interpret the provisions of the new Act. The problem is that the judiciary tasked with such an exercise has had 52 years of relatively unaltered development under the old Act. In short, it'll take time for the effect of the new Act to properly be felt, and we do anticipate a few bumps in the road ahead. 
And one of the biggest criticisms under the old regime was that the extent to which the courts were empowered to interfere with the arbitral process. While over time the judiciary has developed a reluctance to exercise this power, the new act essentially abolishes this power in respect of international arbitrations. Okay, now it's been a common theme of these episodes that new reforms in arbitration laws tend to take time to bed in and to change judicial attitudes. I understand that another challenge in the South African courts is that there have, in some instances, been situations where they've denied jurisdiction over claims to enforce a foreign award. Can you tell us more about this? Certainly. Historically, a South African court had to establish its own jurisdiction in order to entertain a matter which was brought before it. If the court did not hold such jurisdiction, it was not empowered to hear the matter. Cross-border and entirely foreign matters became rather problematic, as often one, if not both parties, were foreign entities, over which the court held no jurisdiction. The existence of one or more connecting factors had to exist in order for the matter to proceed, and a connecting factor is simply an additional jurisdictional link between the matter and the South African courts. It did not matter that the application was for the enforcement of a foreign arbitral award. The local courts had to hold jurisdiction over the matter before it, and also had to be in a position to grant relief that was, in its view, effective. For this reason, it was often a requirement to bring proceedings to attach assets within the jurisdiction of the court to found jurisdiction. Now, in relation to international arbitration, one is often faced with a situation where neither of the parties are resident in the country in which enforcement is sought. Strictly speaking, the question of effectiveness should not be a bar to enforcement under the New York Convention framework, and yet this was often a prerequisite for enforcement of the award in South Africa. Prior to the new Act, the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards Act, which was supposed to give effect to the provisions of the New York Convention, only provided that a court may enforce a foreign arbitral award if certain requirements were met. It was not under an obligation to do so. And this hurdle became a common stumbling block to the enforcement. And whilst the courts claimed to be pro-enforcement, many applications for enforcement actually failed on jurisdictional grounds alone. Okay, that's good context. So tell us, has the position changed under the new Act? Yes, at least on the face of it. Article 16 of the new Act states that the court is now obliged to enforce foreign arbitral awards, as envisaged under the New York Convention. And this is opposed to the position where previously a court was only entitled to enforce such an award. Only the grounds listed under Article 18 of the Act may be relied upon by a court when refusing to enforce an award. And these grounds mirror those set out in Article 5 of the New York Convention, none of which makes reference to the lack of jurisdiction of the enforcing court, which also makes perfect sense in the context of a foreign arbitral award. But the wording of the Act is unfortunately not explicit, and more often than not, procedural questions are left to the determination of local courts. Because of this, we will be reliant upon the development of the common law to clarify the position once and for all. Thanks, Jonathan. It's a good sign the new reform aligns the requirements with those of the New York Convention. Now, one South African law that has generated controversy with foreign investors is the Protection of Businesses Act. Can you tell our listeners more about this and its impact on arbitration? Yes, that's right. The Protection of Businesses Act is a rather controversial piece of legislation, and it dates back to 1978, which as an aside, is the year after the country enacted legislation designed to give effect to the provisions of the New York Convention. The Act was designed to restrict the enforcement of certain foreign judgments, orders and awards which unfortunately included arbitral awards. 
relating to, and I quote, the mining, importation, exportation, refinement, possession, use or sale of or ownership to any matter or material of whatever nature, whether within, outside, into or from the Republic. In order to enforce any order or award falling within the ambit of the Act, ministerial consent was required. Now, whilst the purported intention was to protect the natural resources of the country, the rather generous wording of the Act had a chilling effect on investor confidence. And although the courts have been interpreting the wording in a rather restrictively manner, the fact remains that this Act is binding law in the country today. But there is a good news story. The new International Arbitration Act has expressly removed the reference to arbitral awards from the ambit of the Act. So at least in the context of the enforcement of international or foreign arbitral awards, this Act will no longer be a problem. Okay, and that sounds like an advantage for arbitration over court judgments. Is it right then that court judgments still are, strictly speaking, within the ambit of the Act? That's correct. The, the only amendment uh, to the Act was the removal of reference to arbitral awards. So all other forms of um, dispute resolution will be subject to the provisions of the Act. Okay, well, that's another relevant factor. Thank you. Um, turning for a moment to the topic of public policy, in particular, the public policy defence at the enforcement stage of proceedings when you're trying to enforce an arbitration award. How does South Africa apply the concept of public policy, particularly in light of the new Act? Well, I guess no discussion about a developing nation is complete without a discussion around public policy. It has been said that on the African continent, public policy can often take, the, take on the characteristics of a schizophrenic lion. And for the most part, this is true. But the South African courts have for a number of years sought to narrow the scope of public policy in an effort to create judicial certainty. For example, in Seton, Seton Co. versus Silver Oak Industries, a party resisted enforcement of a French award on grounds of public policy. They argued that the award was tainted by fraud. The court held that the enforcing court was not empowered by the New York Convention to investigate allegations of fraud. The award is final unless the fraud is apparent from the face of the award. The court stated that the appropriate course of action would be for the challenging party to apply to the courts of the seat of the arbitration, so in this instance the French courts, to have the award set aside. Ultimately, the challenge was dismissed and the award was enforced. As you'll appreciate, however, public policy is a relatively fluid concept, often, in, often evolving in tune with political developments, and as such the concept of certainty is much more of a policy objective than it is a target. So what is regarded as compliant with public policy today may not be compliant tomorrow and vice versa. And of course, uh, it's worth reminding ourselves that public policy is not a South African or even a wider African uh, phenomenon. It's explicitly provided for in Article 5 of the New York Convention as a legitimate ground uh, for the refusal to enforce an arbitral award. That's correct. The new Act in Article 18 explicitly provides for this defence. What's more, Article 34 of the Model Law, as enacted by South Africa, provides for the setting aside of an award on public policy grounds. Article 36 of the Model Law as enacted by South Africa echoes Article 18 of the Act, which provides for the defence of public policy to be raised at the enforcement stage. One can understand why such a clear articulation of a defence often described as a schizophrenic line may appear ominous. But the real magic as far as the development of the South African law goes appears in Article 2, capital A of the Model Law. This provision states that regard must be had to the international origin of the Model Law, and the need to promote uniformity in its application. It also requires that questions concerning matters governed 
by the model law must be settled in conformity with the general principles upon which the law is based. This is significant and suggests that South African domestic public policy should not influence a defence based on public policy grounds under the new Act. But the full significance of this provision does not yet appear to have been properly appreciated. But we do see this as a significant area for development in the future. Great. Well, it's certainly a good news story for anyone looking for clarity in relation to the interpretation of the public policy defence in South Africa. One would hope that uh, perhaps a distinction between domestic public public policy and international public policy would also influence neighbouring countries as well, if it hasn't done so already. So with that, let's look at those neighbouring countries. Could you shed some light on the enforcement of foreign awards in other countries in the Southern African region? Well, I think that one may best describe the practice of enforcement in the region as inconsistent. Many of the countries in Southern Africa, in particular Botswana, Iswatini, which is former Swaziland, Namibia and Lesotho, do not differentiate between domestic and international arbitration. This means that the global developments in the area of international arbitration are unlikely to feature at all in the domestic landscape. Many courts also continue to hold significant degree of control over arbitral proceedings, which often becomes evidence at the enforcement stage, unfortunately. This is often a consequence of an inherent lack of trust in the arbitral process. In Botswana, the public stated oversight function of the court has been touted as a clear sign of support for the arbitral process. It's a fact that the majority of arbitral awards enforced through the courts in the region relate to purely domestic matters, often involving employment-related disputes, and it appears that only with the growth of international arbitration in the region will we start to see the real tangible development in the area. I guess that this is the classic chicken-and-egg scenario. Yes, and I guess you're right. We need to wait and see how more um, arbitral practice will lead to development. What about the framework, though? What's the, what about the prevalence of the New York Convention in the region? Well, the New York Convention does hold significant influence in the region. Um, all countries forming part of the Southern Africa, apart from Namibia and Eswatini, um, are signatories to the Convention. But the manner in which each country has given effect to the Convention differs from country to country. There's also no denying that public policy remains a concern, as is the case in most developing regions. Mauritius was a clear leader in the region to first confirm that public policy in the context of an international arbitration actually means international public policy and not merely domestic public policy. And this appears to be in line with what is expected of the South African courts under the new Act. And touching on Zimbabwe for a moment, its law expressly states that public policy is to be understood as the public policy of Zimbabwe, not international public policy. The law declares that an award is in conflict with the public policy of Zimbabwe if the making of the award was induced or affected by fraud or corruption or a breach of the rules of natural justice, which occurred in connection with the making of the award. This suggests that the courts in Zimbabwe may be more likely to adopt a more interventionist role. Okay, that's interesting. Thanks. We've had some experience of uh, arbitration relations in Zimbabwe in, in the London group here. Now, just going back to Mauritius... Uh, which you mentioned, that has a certain profile for those of us outside the region. Can we just understand where it stands in relation to the enforcement of foreign arbitral awards? It does seem to have developed a reputation of being the arbitral seat of choice. And I use the phrase region here loosely, recognising that Mauritius is some 700 miles east of Madagascar. Uh, but from those of us further away, uh, we sort of bracket it in the same uh, uh, region. So where does it sit? 
Well, well you're quite right, Nick. Uh, Mauritius did develop a solid reputation for being the safest seat in the region, and this was largely due to significant legislative reforms. But relative slow growth in actual international arbitration practice has challenged this perception of late. But having said this, Mauritius does boast almost everything one would look for regarding enforcement, other than a long track record of actual practical enforcement, but this is likely to come in due course. Mauritius is a signatory to the New York Convention. In 2013, it withdrew its reciprocity reservation, which now means that it will allow an arbitral award to be enforced, even if the seat of the arbitration is a country that is not a signatory to the New York Convention. It has adopted the provisions of the model law, and the courts are largely seen to be supportive of arbitration. Its attitude towards public policy, um, particularly in relation to the enforcement of foreign arbitral awards, is to be welcomed and is likely to continue to hold persuasive value in the region. And whilst the practice of international arbitration may not have developed as quickly and as significantly as one was as was originally anticipated, the legislative framework in place should ensure that Mauritius remains a strong enforcer of foreign arbitral awards in the region. Thank you, and certainly one can applaud the effort and ambition of Mauritius to become a regional arbitration centre and indeed another global arbitration hub. Well, thank you for joining me today, Jonathan, and we hope this short discussion sheds light on some of the practical considerations to bear in mind when thinking about South Africa and its neighbours when it comes to enforcement of arbitral awards. Now, of course, it's not possible to tackle all the many and diverse jurisdictions of Africa in one podcast, but we have published a guide to dispute resolution in Africa, which covers all 54 African jurisdictions and has been prepared with leading practitioners in those jurisdictions. It's a very comprehensive guide covering issues ranging from the court systems and civil procedure, enforcing foreign judgments and awards, and investment treaty protections. If you are interested in this, you can find a link to the guide in the description of this podcast. For now, thank you for joining us on this episode. And if you have any questions, feedback or comments, do please get in touch.